Welcome to the podcast, Things I Didn't Learn in School. Today I'm speaking with Pete Beeman, who is an American sculptor who makes large public installations all over the United States and abroad. To get a sense of the work that we're going to discuss, I encourage you to go to his website, petebeeman.com, P-E-T-E-B-E-E-M-A-N.com, and you can see a number of the works that we describe. As a reminder, this podcast grew out of the book, Raising a Thief, where I wrote down the challenges that I went through as a father, and that after completing the book, I realized that a lot of people have memoir-worthy stories. They just don't have the time to write them. And so I'm taking those out of all the people around me who I think could easily fill pages of a book, and Peter is definitely one of them. If you enjoy the podcast, please spread the word and encourage others to listen to it, and post a review on uh, Apple Podcasts, because that sort of draws other people to it as well. So without any further ado, Peter. Thanks, Paul. Nice to be here. So share a little bit with the audience who you are, how you ended up doing what you're doing. A lot of people think, I would like to be an artist. You're a real, live, breathing artist. I didn't really imagine myself as an artist at all until sometime in college. My mom is an artist and my dad is an engineer. And when I went to college, I thought, I'm going to do an engineering degree, but they had this five-year program where you could get another degree as well. And I was like, oh, I'll do creative writing because I'm really into writing and I'm really creative that way. And I did about a year of that and I was terrible. My writing was terrible. It was intolerable to read. I couldn't just no. Absolutely not. So I happened at that point to take an art class. And that was where everything clicked for me. It was like, oh, here's something I can pour everything I got into and really dig into in a way that I can't do anything else. I was good at physics and I was good at math. I liked engineering, but I could sort of do it as a hobby. <laughs> you know, like, I couldn't love it. And when I took that art class, I was like, it didn't matter if I was drawing a stupid self-portrait in a mirror with chalk or if it was building a wire slug with a crank and it makes its arms clap. I just loved it. It was so fun. And I could do it for hours on end and not think about the rest of anything. So that was a turning point for me. It, my mom was a woodworker. So by the time I finished grade school, she had taught me a lot about sort of the basics of woodworking. And I think I took a home ec class in sixth grade where I learned how to sew, which also became like a piece of what I would say is my unavoidable need to build. Big um, things, though. Big. I am often bent towards big. So I'm six foot eight. Paul knows this well. So I've always seen the world from this perspective of being really tall and things being expected of me because I'm tall, but also finding that, you know, when I stand next to somebody, it intimidates them because I'm so tall. Interesting. I don't mean to. So I found that I have to sort of modulate my presence in the world uh, because of my height. Um, that's something that I found myself doing. I don't think I understood what I was doing until I was in my 20s or something. But I think what happened is that I discovered in building things, I can build them any size I want and make them as big and impressive and intimidating or invasive as I want without feeling responsible for it. In building sculpture, I don't. I can just build something and it's its, its own thing. I, so I think that's part of what has driven me into building things larger than expected. And that's a awkward hobby because then you have this huge thing you got to put somewhere or, you know, it takes forever to build a big thing because it's a whole lot of material and it costs a lot of money and that kind of thing. 
And that's part of how I got into public art is that public art by force has to be large enough to engage with and to engage the public with and to, to get people pay attention to it and to occupy public spaces, which tend to be large spaces. So public art is a funny default. Like it has, it needs the scale I like to work at. It has to be funded. Like there's a budget with it. Like somebody has to pay for it. So there's a budget to work with to build something. It's sort of a merging of the, your dad's engineer, your mom has this artistic Artistic side. So it's merging the left and the right brain. I mean, it's to build these sculptures, you really actually have to know very technical things, the engineering. And then there's also this creative side. So it's a very rare combo. Some ways it seems like that. It's certainly, you know, in in college, the engineering buildings were on one side of campus and art buildings were on the other side of campus in this very sort of representational way. And never the twain shall meet. Like nobody in one department would talk about the other department. But for me, it was all about material and putting things together and how things go together and what they mean when they're together. And so for me, there, there was a lot more commonality to it all the way along. And when I went to graduate school, it was because it was a department, it was a program at Stanford that was offered at the time between mechanical engineering and visual arts. Uh And they had professors from both in the department. But in some ways, when I look to my roots and I think about my dad being an engineer and my mom being very artistic and she would call herself a furniture maker. I would call her an artist, but I think that's obvious sort of like pairing of roots that I spring not so far from those trees. But then there's other pieces that I look to also just in thinking about the things that were around my house. When I was a kid, there was a Oregon artist named Leroy Setzel, who's a wood carver. Hmm. Uh, he's, he's probably 15, 20 years dead now, but his stuff is all over in public buildings all over Oregon Oregon's where you grew up. Yeah, I grew up in Portland, Oregon. And his wood carving is just really beautiful, very abstract, a lot of modulated surfaces and car- hand-carved surfaces. And his several of his pieces were in our house growing up. And so I was, mm. they were just a very strong presence from very early on. And he was around our house a fair amount growing up. So he'd come mm. over for a Sunday brunch, and he was just a bigger-than-life kind of guy. And he would, you know... He would sing some opera to us over brunch and talk in a big sort of elaborate way and needle my mom to no end and bug the heck out of her, which was pretty funny. And then there was another local Oregon artist named Joe Police who built a lot of welded wire sculptures. But he liked to do things that moved and things with little cranks and mechanisms in them built into them. And we had a mouse. I think my parents had bought one of his sculptures and they, they couldn't afford it. So they bought it with some friends of theirs, some architect friends of theirs, <laughs> or the folks that we always had, you know, Easter brunch with every, every year. Each would have it for three years. So it went back and forth in our house. And it was, again, growing up, it was this thing that was always there off the kitchen in our house, this little welded steel mechanical mouse that you turn the crank and his mouth would open, his ears would wobble and and it would squeak it had a little like dog chew toy in it or something and it would squish that and it would squeak every time you did it and i just see these two artists and their stuff in my house as like the roots of everything i'm interested in in so like these industrial steel welded sculptures that are mechanical and move and then these exquisite carved wooden surfaces just a really delicious material and a surface and a all about form and shape in a way that the that the Joe Police thing isn't in the way that the wireframe sculpture wasn't. So in some ways, those are two more sources in my roots. And suddenly it's like, oh, maybe this is a thing that I could do as a thing. You know, maybe this could be, I don't know, maybe I could be an artist when I grow up. 
Who knows? Is it scary to set out to do something like that? A lot of people worry that if they pursue that, they'll that's sort of like a winner take all, and everybody else starves. Yeah, it, it was. You know, I've had an easy life. My parents were have always been super supportive, and they're well off, and they were able to afford to give me a really good education, and they gave me a really good education in the home, and so I was always, I've always. You know, I have the luxuries of a upper middle class uh, white America. You know, like I have everything I could ask for going in. So scary. You know, worst that happens is I have to go get a job. It's that level of scary. So the the harder thing is figuring out what the path is. In some ways, there's a lot of professions where the path is clear. Like if you want to be a doctor, you know what you got to do. Yeah, it's hard work, but yes. you know what you got to do. You got to go to very clear. You got to track right through. And there's a track, there's a path. Same with whatever, being a lawyer or a lot of things. My dad was a big fan of saying, don't just sit there and wait to figure out what's going to happen. Go try a thing. And then if it works, great. Then you know that that works. And that's a thing you can try, the thing you can do. And if it doesn't work, then you know a thing. You learned that that doesn't work and that's the wrong direction to go. So at that point, I was like, well, okay, I want to learn more about how to build things. Like one of the things, you know, your podcast, what I, what I didn't learn in college. Art in college for me was like opening a door and that's about it. It's like, mm. there's a thing called art that you can mess around with. And mm. we can't tell you too much about it here in these four years, but... It exists. Yeah, it exists. That was about as far as that got. You know, I didn't come away with, with any technical knowledge about how to build something or any practical knowledge about what to do with it once you did build it. There was a lot of talk about, you know, how is this art and how does it work? And how do you make a thing that's of interest to the people or to yourself? So part of what I came out of college with was a strong desire to learn a more practical angle on how to build things. Like I wanted to know how to weld something right. I wanted to know how to build something out of fiberglass. I wanted to know what the right way to do woodworking was. That one I felt pretty confident in, but you know, all those things were out there. I ended up picking up a bunch of small time project sort of jobs, building stuff for other people, in every case, like, I'd get paid enough to buy a new piece of equipment, another little welder or something, and just sort of string it along that way. And I did a little bit of work for a guy who was one of my mentor, kind of people who was a public artist in Portland, and Keith Joe, who does a lot of bronze stuff. I was quill boy to his porcupine man. He what does that a, mean? He built a six-foot bronze porcupine that's uh-huh. on a post somewhere in uh, Moscow, Idaho. Uh-huh. To this day, it spins up there. It's on a bearing. And so he was, was building this porcupine, and it had like 80 bronze quills, about three feet long, about two-inch diameter, cut out a flat sheet, hammered into a round, and then welded closed so that these beautiful spire pokey bits, um, and then all welded onto this frame. And he was cranking away on the frame of this, the body of this uh, porcupine, but he was behind schedule, and he was like, well, you could come help make my quills (laughs) so that was great that was the first time i worked for an artist and really saw somebody doing a professional job you know that was a public art project that he was doing actually it was his suggestion that got me my next big project i worked for a guy named michael curry who was a sort of a stage set prop designer mechanical genius artist trained his biggest probably biggest claim to fame is that he designed the puppets for Julie Taymor's Lion King on Broadway. 
Okay. Which is a big, splashy show. Came back to Portland, Oregon, where I was at the time, and opened up a shop to build a bunch of giant puppets for Disneyland, meaning like, you know, 18-foot-tall giraffes that somebody would sit in the body of, and the neck would be able to go all the way down, and the head would move all around. He hired me to help out in the metal shop when I was, I don't know, mid-20s somewhere. He's a genius, but he's not the best manager. So <laughs> That's what always happens with geniuses. Yeah. The two mechanical welder builder guys who were hired to, that I was hired to be their assistant were sort of quickly fired. And then I was them. So I suddenly became the mechanical department and the welding department. And I'm like, so wait, what? I have to, what? I have to learn how to weld aluminum by tomorrow? What are you talking about? That was really my first graduate school with Michael Curry. He just was, his mind was on fire with ideas all the time, mechanical ideas and how to make things work and build things. And he had a lot of big, interesting projects for Disneyland and Disney World and Tokyo Disney and Las Vegas stage shows and Broadway shows and operas and all kinds of things. So there's always some weird project coming in and always a super tight timeline, but usually a realistic budget so we could actually build some something interesting and build it well. And everything that we did moved and everything that we did got abused in its use. Um, sure. So uh, the that's like night after night. That must be, so you got to yeah. build stuff to last. Yeah. Got to build it to last and then rebuild it. And I think his shop is still, this is whatever, 30 years later, I think his shop is still building the replacement pieces for a lot of those Lion King shows. That was about the last big project I did with him was that Lion King on Broadway. But that was, I worked for him for about five years, and that was just awesome. It was fantastic. We were constantly doing something interesting, building some big, crazy thing. And it was the pace was always too fast for him to manage everything. So he had to hand a lot off to all of us to figure out what to do. And it was a big open opportunity with great budget and material and equipment and a great place to learn. Sounds like lesson number one is, I guess, listen. So for you, it was really like the creative writing, it felt all wrong. This other thing was a revelation. And then the second key thing, it sounds like you just got to face the fact that if you're going to go down a creative career, there is no clear path and you're kind of got to be improvising. That's fairly both, both accurate. There's a lot of different ways to go about anything, right? And I was always coming at things from one foot in engineering and one foot in art, not quite directly anyhow. So I think that for a lot of people... There is a clearer path in art where, you know, you get your master's degree and you narrow down your focus and you get maybe a teaching job to support your art, your life while you make art and that buys you the time and the rest. But that was never much of interest to me. So I was always more interested in getting a building job, mm-hmm. building something interesting to support the, the other bits. In terms of what you don't learn in school, the thing I've often tell young people who work with me, I often hire artists fresh out of art school or young folks who are thinking about art to help me out on my projects in the summers in Portland. And the thing I often focus on is just go find a job that does something like what you want to do. It doesn't have to be art, but it has to have elements of what the pieces are. And try it out. You, you might find that it tells you a lot. It might, you might find that it just tells you that you're barking up the wrong tree. You might find that it tells you, oh, these pieces are really good. And I want to chase those pieces. You'll find something in there. Even a no answer is an answer, you know, Mm -hmm. you'll find a direction forward in that. So for me, I spent about 10 years after college just working for people building stuff. And that was a lot of different people. I was really lucky in who I ran into and who needed help and 
when I fell into it and that my, my superiors got sacked and I got their jobs. <laughs> <laughs> that worked out really well for me. You know, it was like fantastic. That's right. an old trick. Just stay yeah. in place and yeah. all of a sudden you get promoted. <laughs> Survive last man standing. Can you talk about your process? So you get one of these things or you're walking down the like, what is the day-to-day of somebody like who builds giant moving sculptures? Right. And then for people, you've got to look at Peter's website to get a sense of what these sculptures are. They're unbelievable. It's a difficult thing to convey in words. But still, if you could share a little bit what yeah. that, you know, yeah, like you wake up, you up at like six in the morning drinking coffee and sketching, or do you, I don't know, where, where does it all come to you? It sort of depends on how the project goes. But if it's, for example, the Lincoln City project was a selection based on an interview. So I went down, it was an interesting process. They'll send me a contract that their lawyers, lawyers will write up, and then I will then have to try and resist all the lawyerly parts of. That's one part of my big artistic life is I have to read contracts. And if we get to an agreement on that, there'll be some spelling out there of like, I'll go to town, I'll talk to all the players who are relevant. All the people who care about this project, there'll probably be a public input session of some sort where, you know, I'll give a little talk about my work and then anybody in the public who wants to say, well, you know, what we were really hoping for from this sculpture was something people could gather around or something people could see from three miles away. There'll be little snippets in what they say that can come together and really actually inform what I do from there. So then I'll take all the information I can get, look at all the maps, all the drawings, all the plans, all the whatever I can get from the city, all this input. I'll go tour the site and then I'll go back and I'll start chewing through it and try and like arrange it all into something that makes sense. So really, it's at first, it's just about gathering information and then it's about assimilating that information, trying to figure out, trying to wheedle out pull out straws out of that information, draw connections between that might be as goofy as, you know, mind mapping, drawing word bubbles that connect to each other until a bunch of bubbles turn out to have the same word or something. And it might just be thinking it through, writing out what I learned. And it's usually not till sort of well into that, that that I let myself actually, you know, try and do any sketching or anything like that. How long does that process take? So the whole public art project can take years. How um, much does the idea, like you sketch it out and then you come back the next day and you're like, no, I need to, in other words, for a lot of people say about writing, you writing isn't really writing, it's editing, actually. It's constantly, yeah. iter- it, no, it's yeah. making small iterations that makes yeah. it good. Is so that true in your problem, case? Yeah. So part of the problem with public art is that, especially that style where you're like, we need a proposal in one month, is that your timeline is, is ridiculous. You're forcing a creative result out of a super limited timeline this idea which is not quite right but i'm out of time now so i'll have to lock into an idea and commit to it so occasionally i'm delivering an an idea that i don't think is strong enough and the cool part about that is then they don't choose it so that's awesome but it means that i've wasted a lot of time in this process and you don't get paid enough for a proposal delivery Part of are you calm crazy. during this? Or are you like up in the middle of the night and going crazy and playing like loud Mostly punk music? Or? I, well, by now I've been doing it for 20 years, so I'm a little early calmer than I used to be. But sometimes it gets quite stressful. Like it gets really depressing if you've been banging your head into it for two weeks and you don't, you don't see a path forward. Right. Part of why last spring was really fun for me. I was, for some reason, I had more short lists than I usually do. And there it is COVID. Like everybody's complaining about being out of work. And I have like, more work than I have in 10 years and tons of like 
nibbles and I was on fire. Like every idea I had was the right idea for the project. Even the uh -huh. ones they didn't use, like I didn't care. They're, you're not going to choose this. It's too weird for you. It's too this for you. It's too that. But this is the right idea for your site from me. And I like, I don't always feel that confident, which I think a lot of uh, successful artists can get there by pure bluster. You know, just like, oh, this is the right idea. Boom. I'm saying it. And so it's true. And I just, I can't, I can't, I'm not very good at saying that if I don't believe it. Most of the time I can find a path to where we are like, okay, I have a kernel of an idea here. I think I can make something of this idea. And then it can be stressful turning that kernel into a full-blown idea that really addresses the space and addresses the community and addresses the designers involved and addresses all the concerns and covers all the safety aspects and uh, engineering aspects that have to go into a public art piece. That part where you're actually doing the creative work. Yeah. So these projects take like a fast one will be nine months and a slow one will be three years overall. But the creative part might be a week or three days. Wow. And then the rest of it is like filling in the blanks, taking it from A to Z. Like, wow. Taking that idea, if they go for it, then you got to work through a whole lot of other stuff. You got to work through dealing with the municipality to make sure they're happy, to make sure their engineers are happy. You got to deal with your engineers to make sure your engineers think that this is going to stand up, that they do the work that covers the locality you're going to. You got to make sure your suppliers on the ground there are going to do the work you need and they're going to do it to the letter of the law. You got to find your suppliers wherever you build things. I have a great network in Portland that I love. Like I do all my building in Portland, Oregon. And I have a great <laughs> shop there and a great network there. That takes a long time to build that up and understand where to get things and how to get things wrong. And there's a lot of interesting parts along the way and a lot of creative parts along the way. I think in a lot of ways, I'm more of a creative problem solver than I am a creative person. I always kind of <laughs> scoff when people say I'm creative. I think I'm an awesome creative problem solver. And I think my best projects are when I create a good problem at the start. When my creative, my one week of creative work comes up with a good problem. And then the rest of the project is creative problem solving that problem. I like to build in my own obstructions that I then have to solve and figure out. Can you talk about some of your more impactful projects? It, it strikes me always when I've looked at them or other people's sculptures, it's just a different language. If you're used to processing, like writing numbers, and then all of a sudden you see this thing, it's completely yeah. different. I think what you're letter. describing there is that's my dream of a successful sculpture. It's like, what I want is to walk around a corner in a city where I've been seeing buildings and cars and buses and stores and storefronts and houses, walk around a corner and see a thing that makes me go, what is that? What, do you, mm. what is this doing here? Wow, what is that? Why? And to totally be taken aback. Shortly after college, I went to Europe and traveled around and just looked at all the art I could find. I, would, you know, I wouldn't eat enough and I would stay in the cheapest hostel I could find to save money to go have the entry fee to all the museums I could mm -hmm. each day. And the stuff that really got me outdoors was these public projects where I would just be like, my mind would be blown out. You stumble on something and you're like, this is not what I expected. So take us through some of these projects, some of the so, notable ones that are on your website or whatever. The biggest, easiest one to point out is that really my first big project, which is in Portland, Oregon, a downtown across from Powell's Books, a big giant independent bookstore in Portland. 
And it's a three-legged, it's a tripod that's about 14 feet tall. And it supports a pendulum hanging from its center on a gimbal. A gimbal is a joint that lets you swing any direction. So that pendulum is sort of a seed pod shaped. It's actually based on a um, star fruit. I took an actual star fruit and I pulled a pattern off of it and then blew it up to get that shape. And then out of the top of that is sticking 73 titanium tubes, about 15 feet high. So the whole thing is about 30 feet high. Everybody says it looks like something else. You know, local rock and roll newspaper talks about it, called it Satan's testicle. That was my favorite <laughs> name for it. But other people are like, oh, it looks like one of those funny eraser brushes that they used to have with typewriters to uh-huh. up. And, you know, you get all sorts of oh, the spring onion, you know, the green onion or all kind of different names. And I'd love people just bring different stuff to it. So it's a big, weird thing in the middle of this. It looks like an alien being dropped something in the middle of this intersection and it moves. So you can walk up and you can push the hanging pendulum part and it's connected to the springs above, the tubes above. And if you push that, then the whole central part moves, but the tubes above act as springs. So the bottom wants to swing in a very steady motion as a pendulum, while the tubes above want to bounce like a spring, and the two motions feed off each other. So the swinging of the pendulum forces the the tubes to move, but the bounce of the tubes feeds back into the pendulum. And so you get this funny sort of weird combination of motions the more you move it around. And it's, you know, it's right in the middle of the street, so it's this huge thing, 30-foot tall thing that you can move like through a 15-foot arc or 20-foot arc at buses going by and so forth. And this is, I mean, it almost sounds like industrial machinery. So to weave this through all the protocols to have yeah. something that there must have been a whole, I know some of it's mystery, you don't want to share it, but can you <laughs> share? It's a little bit like a magic trick to get the people to do the, oh, wow. But can you say something about the magic? Because movement, having people touch stuff, the interaction, that is a constant. Even when it doesn't move, that one is a good one for the unexpected. You know, you just, it's different forms and shapes and materials and surfaces than you expect when you come around the corner in a city. Mm -hmm. Especially when I put that piece in, that, that part of the city was pretty dumpy and transitioning from what it had been to what it is now. So it was a pretty rough and tumble neighborhood with a lot of interesting stuff going on, but it was all sort of invisible and underground. It was like, you know, late night clubs and record stores and that kind of thing. There wasn't a lot of sign on the street of the life that was going on there or the life that was going to come. It's now a pretty posh, sort of the start of a pretty posh neighborhood. So I, so I, I should thing. speculate on real estate based on your sculptures, basically. <laughs> you know, that's just, just that one. I, in some ways, that one is the most visible and central piece I've ever been allowed to build. Mm-hmm. Some of the ones in Taiwan are are pretty front and center. There's one that's sort of in the, it's on, at a subway station in Taipei's version of Central Park. But it's just not like, the pod in Portland is, it's a huge intersection next to one of the biggest tourist destinations in the city. So it's Can just you like, say what it's about? That project was sponsored by the streetcar. They were putting in a streetcar that ran, runs down 10th and up 11th and actually goes up into my neighborhood and past my house where I live when I'm in Portland. And as part of that, they had to do a percent for art as part of that. And so they had this budget and they said, you know, we're open. We're open to whatever. What do you want to do? Where do you want to do it? And for me, like that was the neighborhood where there was so much going on out of sight. 
And it was so vibrant and it was going to be so much more vibrant that that was the spot to focus on for me. So I was like, I want to use this location. There was a, there happened to be a, a little traffic triangle between a street that came off of a diagonal and mm-hmm. two other square streets. And so there was this empty traffic triangle there. And I was like, can I use that? Is that, Hey, can it, do you mind if I, can I use that? And it was a perfect pedestal to put the thing on because it was a pedestal that people walk on to get from one place to another. Yeah. Strong sight everywhere. I wanted to make a nod to the infrastructure of Portland because part of what makes Portland cool is they have good infrastructure. Hmm. They have good transit. They think a lot in Portland about how to build the city to keep it livable. And that continues to be true. It was true in the 70s when my parents were in politics and it's, it's true now. So part of what I want to do was a nod to the infrastructure. So I see that tripod that holds the whole thing up as the infrastructure. It's these big, shiny stainless steel legs with a sort of interesting shape to them. And they each end in a wheel. So it's a tripod and the wheels point towards the center. So the wheels, they're not actual wheels. They're just welded circles, mm-hmm. right? But they're implying wheels, sort of making a connection to the streetcar. And for me, talking about the infrastructure that, that holds up the city. But it's not the infrastructure that makes the city vibrant and great. It's that it comes alive when you interact with it. When you go mm-hmm. push it around, it gets really exciting. So for me, it's this like... Okay, you have it's almost a plant-like thing. The seed pod sort of hangs down, and then you have these fronds going up. And you, if you go mess with it, it really comes alive in a way you don't expect. And it's like, oh, that was—I didn't see that coming. This is a different piece. So for me, that was like the infrastructure of the city meets the human life of the city and the vibrancy that goes on downtown in that area and really all over the city. Like all of your sculptures involve interaction with the audience. Public art. It's not art. It's public art. It's got to have public in it. It's got to have some way to engage people (laughs) or it doesn't work. And I've seen plenty of public art that doesn't work. And I've made some public art that doesn't work. I'm not going to say I've made a lot. But for me, it's got to engage you in some way. In some ways, interaction and motion are like a cheap shot for me. Like that is a way to grab your eye. That is a way to grab your attention if you're invited to come up to a piece of art and touch it and make it do something, hmm. that's not what you think of as art. What you think of right. as art is the thing you can't touch, the thing you're not allowed to touch. My hope is always that if you're inviting somebody to come and connect with a thing, you have a much, much better chance of taking them out of whatever it is they're doing already and joining you in your little bubble of sculpture for a minute hmm. and a half. If you can get them to grab this thing and turn the crank and be like, oh, I didn't expect it to do that. Or wait, can I figure out how it's doing that? Or why? Does this mean something? Is this what's going on here? Does this look like a dinosaur or does it look like an umbrella? I can't quite tell. So this raises two questions. One of them very practical. One of them very abstract. Practical. Nobody has like an instruction book for how to build 15 foot aluminum fronds and how to even move it around and things like that. This stuff you're making, there's no template for it so one of them is like what are all the mechanical issues you run into and you know how do you waggle through them then a separate question is the role of the artist so let's see the first one the mechanics and such so i have a structural engineering degree i have a good understanding of physics and engineering in general and then i worked in a bunch of jobs including that puppet job where we were trying to get things that were going to be heavily abused, physically abused, 
to survive as long as possible. You know, nobody trashes a thing like a 15-year-old giraffe performer at Disneyland. So we had the mandate to go in and build things as strong as we could and use whatever industrial mechanical components we could to make it happen. Yeah. That was a big learning point for me. I think I only know two or three phone numbers still memorized in my head, like my parents' old phone number, my phone number, and the McGuire bearing in Portland, Oregon, the bearing house where I bought bearings, which I still buy bearings at. Like I have their number in my head still after all these years. And I would go there and be like, oh God, I need a thing that's going to do a thing, like bearing kind of thing like this. Like, oh, like a plain bearing like this? No, like a ball bearing with the thing. So like I spent a lot of time figuring out mechanical solutions in that job. Every puppet needed a different thing. So there was like constant iteration of different solutions. It all had a limited lifespan, though. It was going to go be in a stage show for six months or right. a year, or we were going to have to fix it in a year anyhow or whatever. Public art is really different than that because it's going to a place where nobody's going to maintain it. Most places when they do a public art project, when they put the money aside from that, they put the money aside to buy the public art one time, and they don't put part of that money aside to maintain it for all time. I'll make owner's manuals that spell out exactly what those things need to survive. And then part of what happens is I'll, I'll end up simplifying things as much as I can. So partly everything I build that's a public art piece has to be engineered by a structural engineer who's licensed in the state where the piece is going. So just to get through that level of structural engineering, things have to be really rigorously done and overbuilt because that's what structural engineering does. It overbuilds. It has to to make sure it survives an earthquake and a windstorm and a tornado and everything else. But then the mechanics part of it, like I just try and think through how can I simplify, how can I get this motion that a person can put in? How can I contain how they put it in so they can't hurt themselves and they can't hurt the piece? So there's no stops to bang against because a 14-year-old loves nothing more than to bang against a stop until it's broken. How can I transfer that motion up into something up above in a simple way that uses an industrial bearing that you know has been used in industry for 100 years that is designed to be washed down and run at 3,000 RPM with huge load for 10 years. Like, I'm going to use it at one-tenth that load at one-tenth that speed, but I'm going to hope it lasts 30 years or 50 years instead of the 10 years it's designed to at that crazy load. So a lot of what I do is I simplify. So if you look, at, especially as you go through time of my projects, the physical motion in them tends to be reduced and sort of contained a little bit more, constrained more. I don't like to do a lot of stuff with wind drip sculpture because wind doesn't always drive. And if you're going to design it strong enough to last in a strong wind, then it's going to take a pretty strong wind just to get it to move. So my preference is some simple controllable input that a person can do, like turn a crank or move a lever or something that's controllable and really hard to take wrong. And then a simple transfer system made out of industrial parts to let you get some kind of motion out of it that you don't expect to see or that takes you somewhere else. So I want to get the artist thing, but I thought the teachers in your graduate school or undergraduate were riding you because they said you didn't have focus. But what you said right now seems like a heck of a lot of focus and clarity. Was well, it that you... I'm 53 now. Uh-huh. Part of what was going on there, and I think it's still true, is that the art projects I design all 
look pretty different. And there's some commonalities to them. And there are strands that go through, like this piece might be very similar to this piece, might be very similar to this piece, or these five might have a brotherhood in these three or something like that. But if you line up 10 of my projects, you'll be like, the same guy made those things, those five Mm. things. And there's, and it's interesting because in art school, there's a big push to narrow it down. I right. To, you're an artist, you must have a thing. What's going to be your do thing? Do your thing and do it again and again. Down, do your thing. And it's, which is funny because I don't think that's, that's not necessarily true of the big successful artists today. They're all over the map. But in art school, I ran into that a fair amount of like, okay, you're, you're too peripatetic. You're too all over the map. You're... You're doing a thing with a human figure here, and then you're doing a weird geometric mobile here, and then this other abstraction here that doesn't move at all. And like, what's what are you doing? And for me, it was like that's because I was just starting. I was just opening the can of art. I was like, right. what is this stuff? What am I gonna do? What can I do? Right. I was playing around, and I still needed to do a lot of playing around at that point. I think what it, partly working at the puppet place brought a lot of things together for me, and it's part of why I think especially artists, you shouldn't go to art school. You shouldn't go to grad school right after you finish undergrad and get your MFA. I think you should go work and build some stuff and let some time pass and see how serious you are about building stuff. Because it takes a lot of like self-discipline and will and interest to keep building stuff when nobody cares. When nobody's listening and nobody's asking you to turn it in at the end of class, are you really going to go set up a space you can build something in and then build something that doesn't have a home to go to and is too big to stay in your in your garage. So, so now, now that you're older and more mature, so yeah. you get to answer pompous questions. So w- with all of your wisdom, what do you think the role of the artist is? That's one that's different for different people. The role of the artist is the same as the role for the human. Like, you got to make your way in the world. You got to make sense of it however you can. And I think artist is doing it in a noisier way in a way that's making sense of it in the way they can and then putting it out for others to see whereas a lot of people are making their sense of the world by doing their nine to five and going home to their family and providing for their family and and getting the things done that need to get done and that kind of thing so i've never been one to think that the role of the artist is some glorified thing that they you know we need to be like we need to be making a special artist stipend for artists to live off of or, or whatever. I think that a lot of my best work came when I was struggling to make sense of why I was doing it, you know? And so I think that artist role can be a lot of different things. There's a huge amount of political and social commentary that can happen in art and does happen in art. For the most part, mine isn't that. Mine is more about engagement and I think bringing our built environment that we live in to a better place. I think that certainly America has focused on the practicality of building our built environment and not on the philosophy of it. And I think we continually do it in cycles. So we build a mall and destroy our downtown because we think that's going to be better. And it's actually not better. And then we spend the next 20 years trying to rebuild our downtowns. As an artist, part of my struggle is that I would I would like to be more political. I would like to be comment more socially, but it's not what most of my work is about. And it's hard for me to get there. The one piece that I sent you that, that I wrote that other thing about, Jelly, was kind of more political commentary. Mm-hmm. commentary. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the outlier. That wasn't the common. Public art is, again, public is right there in the title. Like, you got to make a lot of people happy. 
right. with public art. And you don't have to make them very happy. You have to make them happy enough. So for the most part, public art isn't going to be like, wow, that's the best thing ever. It's going to be, wow, you, you satisfied a lot of committees there. And that's a bummer, but sometimes that's how it works out. I think when you do it well, you hit a sweet spot where you do get a few people who are like, that thing is cool. So now you look back on this, like you started off in your 20s and it was a world opening. Like, how does a picture look different now in your 50s looking back on what it's really been like to go down this journey versus what you were expecting when you started out? I got to say, I probably wasn't really expecting to actually figure out how to be an artist. I I didn't see that path forward enough Mm -hmm. um i kept sort of bumbling towards it but i really didn't expect it to work out i got through my 20s i made projects on the side from whatever job it was that was paying my bills yeah but it wasn't a lot of things and it wasn't enough to call a body of work in some ways and then as i was finishing grad school half on a whim i applied for a public project public art project in portland and ended up getting it and that was the first time i was like wait a minute this, I could actually do this? When I was finishing grad school, I said to my then-girlfriend, now-wife, like, all I really want right now, like, I didn't have any obligations. I didn't have any debts. I didn't have any kids. I didn't have any anything. We weren't even married then. I, had, it was, I was free and clear. I didn't have anything to worry about. I built a really cool piece in my graduate program as part of my piece. And I was like, you know, all I really want to do is get somebody to pay me enough to build this permanently outdoor in public. And within a year, I got Portland to let me do that. Like my hometown to let me do that at my choice location, Mm -hmm. which was maybe a spoiler for me. Like I've never had it quite so good since. Like nobody's ever (laughs) let me do anything quite so weird in quite so central a location since then, which was great that they took a bet on me and, and were willing. Basically, I've sort of been stringing these public art projects together since then. My wife has a good job. She can pay for our family. She can pay for our kids to be in school and whatnot and cover our needs. So I don't have to be putting the bacon on the table. And they're all vegetarians now anyhow. So so I am free to just make sure my art business takes care of itself. And I can buy that 50-year-old 5,000-pound vertical mill that I want to buy from Florida. But partly stringing these public projects together keeps me so busy. If I'm like messing with engineering and getting the contract figured out and then getting lining up my fabricators and getting my steel ordered, I don't have the time or maybe the mental time to do the goofy project, to do the project for no one. There's so many constraints on the public projects that they can be overwhelming. They can be really frustrating. Like when I finish a project, when I'm, especially in sort of the last little bit where I'm on the downhill slide or I've solved all my problems Mm -hmm. and I know I'm going to finish it and I know it's going to work and it's going to work like I want it to. From there until I install and take those last pictures of it on site, that is really, can be a really satisfying stretch of time. But there's a lot of hard slog goes into it to that. It might be two years of slog getting to that last two weeks of thrill at completing the thing. That there's not a lot of room to make mistakes. There's not a lot of room to play around. And one thing that happened with that jelly project. You want to just describe what it is briefly? Yeah, so this was some really good friends of mine run a interior design studio and they made an 
exhibition space at the front and started inviting artists to install a project there. So I was the second person they invited to install a piece there. And part of why they did that is that they've watched me do these public art, art projects and they've watched me through the hard slog part so much that they're like, we need Pete to do the part where he's loose and free to do whatever he wants for a little bit. Right. So they got me to do one of these projects. And in that, it was really, it was all the things I love so much. It was like the, it's a big wireframe head about 10 feet tall and then a hammer that's about 12 feet long. And it's on a mechanical system that looks a little bit like an, an oil derrick tower. And then there's a big wireframe hand and you grab the hand and you spin the hand around and that turns a crank and that makes the hammer bang up and down on this wireframe head. And that wireframe head is made of such small wire and it's uh, so loosely built that it's really jiggly. So when the hammer just kisses the head on the top, the whole head kind of jiggles around like a big jelly head. That was an idea that came out of a bunch of stuff I'd done long before that was much more personal, but it was also very much thinking about Trump had just been elected and uh, I was thinking about that a lot. So it was both very personal and much more political than anything that I usually am able to do because usually it's going in public where there can't be any politics <laughs> exposed. But also I, I pulled the trigger on that project without really knowing how a lot of the elements were going to be completed. I had a great crew working with me that year. We just built a big public project at a local university. So we just sort of like followed on with that and bang this thing out. But it, the freedom and the curse of the openness to mistakes is really powerful. So in that case, because I didn't know quite how it was going to work or how we were going to put it together or make it work, as we were building it, we were discovering that my first idea didn't work. And so we're going to have to do it this way instead. And my second idea didn't work. And then we're going to do it this way. And that seems to work, but I'm not sure what it'll do. Near the end, we had this wireframe head built around this giant crappy plywood scaffolding that was our leftover plywood from the previous project that we just like screwed together to hold this Jessica, who runs the interior design company and was to be our host for the project, she came over to visit the shop just to check in. And it was right when I was like facing all the unknowns. I was totally unsure of myself. I wasn't sure it was going to work at all or if the whole thing was going to come out looking stupid or it wasn't going to just it was going to fall down. Like I had no idea. And all of my self-doubts were right up at the top of my skin. And she came over and was like, hey, Pete, what's going on? And it looked like crap to her. And she's like, should I be worried? And I was just a complete a-hole. I was like, she ran out of there screaming. She was like, what is up with Pete? Is he going to deliver garbage? What's going on? And that was a really interesting realization for me, that there's a freedom and there's a thing I love in the unknown parts. When you're doing a project that doesn't have to answer to anybody, um, not even really to her, and you're on your own to come up with the solution and try and find your way through to build something really good. The next day we took that plywood scaffolding out and the head did the jiggle that I didn't realize was going to jiggle like that. I thought it was going to be much stiffer and it was just loose enough to be beautiful and to have this exquisite mm. sensuous jiggle that just didn't make any sense out of that. And suddenly like the whole, that changed the whole project. Like it became, mm. it coalesced the whole project in this wonderful way. That was really a happy accident. But the only way I was open to that happy accident was by being self-doubting and unsure. The last question for me is, as I ask all the guests this, is after I've been asking you questions for almost an hour and a half, do you have any questions for me? Did you always want to be a writer? Are you finally getting back to what you wanted to do after yeah. taking a detour through life? Yes. I always wanted to be a writer. 
I ran into a couple of basic problems with the process. Well, the first problem was I found out in college that I have mild dyslexia, which actually made writing a little bit tough. I remember reading books when I was in high school and just being blown away. I think it was like the coolest thing ever that people could put these into words. You'd be transported. And I was like, wow, somebody actually sat down at a desk and did that. And now it's having this impact on me. So I always loved it. But I felt like I needed two things. A, I needed to physically learn how to write. And I wasn't having much success learning it in college. And then two, I felt like I needed some interesting material to write about. That I needed some raw guts. I didn't feel like my life at 20 was was very interesting. So the goal, which I didn't say out loud because I was too embarrassed to say it, but the goal of moving to Russia right Uh after college was to get enough interesting experiences that I could then write, which I did. Worked out. (laughs) But I also got my girlfriend pregnant, which led to a bunch of circumstances that required me to earn money. So it was a a pretty big detour. And I kind of tried to keep it like the newspaper work was all the way. I was like, listen, I could conquer this dyslexia thing through repetition. So I was like, newspapers, you have to write a lot of short, sharp, quick articles. And then it it took a long time. That was my my time at Michael Curry. Oh, it's interesting. A lot of projects. I had to... I had to learn how to do the mechanics and the structures and everything we were building by just pounding through a bunch of them, a bunch of them, a bunch of them. A touch of them. And I felt like I felt like I'm never going to get this type of thing. But then you just began doing it so often that at a certain point, it was like I could begin to get the words to do what my mind wanted them to do. Right. And that was a big click. And then I started on planes for my job. I just started writing. Yeah, I'll say one more thing. I, there's a movie out right now that I haven't seen called The Sound of Metal about a heavy metal drummer who goes deaf. Really? But there was a quote from the guy Riz Ahmed who plays the drummer where he says, creativity is more physical than we realize. So I find that being in my shop and moving around and moving stuff around and making stuff leads to more making stuff. Yeah. The closest I've ever seen in your shops, it's like you're walking inside creativity, which is like the wildest thing. Like normally creativity is somebody sitting there and something's going on inside their head. Like when you're inside the shops, it's like this is being inside creativity. <laughs>